Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups, no more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Talking about this particular voting group is starting to sound real privileged and real racist if we're not careful. And I think that's the right take. I do. You can't spend the time being the most woke white person in the room saying, Listen to minorities, listen to minorities, and then they pick a candidate you don't like, and then you want to shut it down. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. The home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. If you're hearing this and thinking to yourself, is Beth sick? How is that possible? I don't know. I don't know how it's possible, but I am still under the weather. And I appreciate all of you who have uh, reached out with kindness about that on our social media channels. Or some sort of like if they have healing chants, healing dances, healing prayers, healing candles, she will take it. I will take all of the healing things, healing energy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have a big episode today. We're going to talk about Medicare for All in our main segment. We got so much nice feedback on Friday's episode of Five Things You Need to Know About Medicare for All. Thank you for that. If you've not listened to it, you might 
might want to spend some time with that before we get into our main segment today. First, we'll cover the news and then we'll do outside of politics as always. And Sarah has something extra special. Do not skip outside of politics today because Mm -hmm. Sarah is ready for it. I performed a public service is what I did. Before we jump in, we have lots of things to share with you. First, if you did not get to watch our Instagram stories about the Iowa caucuses or if you did and thought, gosh, I wish I could watch that again in an easier format, Sarah took all of those Instagram stories and put them together in one YouTube video. So you can Mm. see the caucuses from the caucuses on video on our YouTube channel. For all of you not on Instagram or for all of your relatives who were like, I don't have Instagram, who you wanted to show the caucus night videos to, they are now on YouTube and the link is in the show notes. Also, we have a free nightly nuance out there for everybody to take in and try if you're wondering what Beth does Monday through Thursday over on Patreon. Tell the people about it, Beth. Well, this one is a little bit different than what I usually do because I usually am very like fact-based. But this past Thursday, I just wanted to take a second and address two forms of email that we're getting a lot of right now. Form of email number one that we get a lot of right now is how can I have grace with my people about the election when we know that the Trump campaign is putting purposeful disinformation onto Facebook in emails and text messages, et cetera. So that's question one. Form of email number two that we're getting a lot of is, and I put this in all capital letters, I can't believe you don't see my candidate exactly the way I see my candidate. And so Mm -hmm. I just took a Mm -hmm. second to reflect on those two types of emails. It was very helpful for me to process. We got a lot of nice feedback on it. And Elise told us the world needs this for free. So just put it out there. So there'll be a link in the show notes and you can listen to that. It's about 11 minutes. Also, at the end of this month, friendly reminder, we will be in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Boston and New York. We will have special VIP meet and greets before each show. The links to all of that are on the events page of our website. The link is in the show notes. We can't wait to see many of you in person um, and to have one of our, you know, uh, decidedly free-flowing, emotional, fun, live conversations in all of those cities. And finally, in the spirit of emotional, fun, free-flowing, you can watch Super Tuesday results, we hope. I feel like I should knock on something as I say that. We hope results will be coming in tonight between 8 and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Hot Mic. Instructions to join us there will be in the show notes. We had so much fun watching live the last debate mm-hmm. with our listeners over there. And so come on, join a few hundred of your closest friends and us, and we will take it all in together. Okay, so there's our business, most of it out of the way. Now we're going to tackle... The big headlines, the big news that happened over the weekend. Before we get to the big news in the Democratic primary, we wanted to start with the coronavirus. It is the top headline, live updates, Twitter's afire. Everyone has questions. It is spreading. That's what I said on the news brief. Like, I don't I don't want to dress it up. Coronavirus is spreading. COVID-19 is spreading. That's the situation right now. And everybody is trying to figure out. What to do with that, what to do about that. And I think the best thing I read was from Seth Godin, who talks about like he works with epidemiologists and thinks a lot about this with regards to virality with the Internet. And he was saying, like, we're experiencing it twice. We get the fear when we realize it's coming. And then when it actually hits, it's like another wave. And I just hate that. We cannot find a good balance. We certainly can't depend on the president to to strike that balance of, hey, let's talk about what's out there. Let's be clear about what helps. 
because we all have such mistrust of our news sources and our government. And so it's just it feels a little bit like a free for all, which I think is the worst possible scenario in a public health contagious disease situation. But I just don't know what we can do about it is the problem. Something that I feel very good about is that our CDC has made some mistakes and is acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. That is the best we can ask for. This is a really difficult situation. You know, human beings are not the only life form that evolve. Viruses evolve. And it's Mm -hmm. complicated. And even the best preparation in the world leaves you a little bit behind where the disease is going to be. So I don't fault anybody for mistakes happening. I have total grace about that. To live in a country where a government agency owns up this quickly and this publicly to its mistakes is a real blessing. And I am really, really thankful for that. I think that's a great way to to build trust. I mean, the people that I am judging are the, the people who are just outright rejecting the advice of our public health professionals. Stop stockpiling masks, you guys. Stop it. It doesn't help. And it hurts the medical professionals who know how to use them properly and need to be protected. That kind of stuff really frustrates me. Like, it's both, it you know, it's what we're not good at, walking the line between it is bad and we don't have a lot of information and also it might not be as bad as we want think it is. You know, I think it's just this this gray area where there are real risks that we're not super great at dealing with. And it's frustrating to watch everyone, not everyone, watch a lot of people just deliberately either play to that or reject the advice or almost lean into the panic. You know, you keep hearing people saying this is not a time to be political. This is exactly a time to be political. How we how we deal with public health crises is exactly what our politics is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be about partisan nastiness. But I feel like every person who tells us not to be political about this is just announcing that all they view politics as being about is partisan nastiness. This is the time that we need to have serious conversations really at every level about how well prepared are we for outbreaks like this? What can we learn from it? What is the role of institutions in our society? I tweeted over the weekend, I don't understand the choice of Mike Pence to be in charge of this, but that's fine. It's not my decision to make. What I think Mike Pence could do really effectively is lead a private sector discussion about the business community's responsibility to help with public health emergencies, particularly in setting policies that allow people to be sick and to stay at home and be paid for their time, Mm -hmm. even when they're not showing up at work. We prolong and spread so much illness in this country because we don't allow people to be sick and we don't allow them to stay home and care for other sick people in their households. And I get how hard it is. I really do. I mean, when one of our kids brings home something from school, It could be a two, three week crisis in our family easily as that virus makes it makes its way through all of us. And I understand that that's a long time for businesses, but we have enough businesses in this country that are big enough and thriving enough to be able to absorb that cost and to help smaller businesses absorb that cost. And that's a conversation. If I were Mike Pence, not something I think about super often. <laughs> but if I were Mike Pence, you know, I would gather everybody together and say, hey, remember those tax cuts? We're going to need something back from you now. Mm-hmm. And here's what it is, because you can really make a difference just by telling people, don't come to work if you are sick. 
I just feel like we're not great at learning in scenarios like that. People get so protective and they want to find a bad guy. I was really glad the CDC acknowledged the mistake because it felt like, especially in the even the national media coverage, like people were trying to find like, well, we have to ask hard question about who's responsible here. As if they these people were like trying to spread the virus. Like people make mistakes. Let's give grace. Let's if if there's nothing that we can't look at and say, hey, we're all on the same team here. We are lost. You know, we're all on the same team here. Nobody wants this to spread. Nobody wants more people to die. So why can't we give grace and say, let's ask hard questions. Let's learn how to do it better. Assuming that we all are trying to have a better outcome this time and next time. It's just frustrating, I think, to feel the conversation go in this very, like, accusatory direction. I just don't think that helps anything. I think asking Americans to view this challenge as a national challenge we can all overcome together by following public health advice, by taking care of our neighbors, by looking out for each other instead of acting like suspicious of everybody with a cough. I feel like there's an opportunity here to to play to the better angels and to find um, a challenge we can all meet together instead of this sort of Every man for himself. Who can I trust? Who can I not trust? Awfulness. It's hard to wrap your mind around how these things spread. And I listened to a really helpful podcast over the weekend. We'll link it in the show notes with Dr. Cameron Kahn. He's an infectious disease doctor um, in Canada who has started a business where he uses artificial intelligence to try to anticipate and understand outbreaks. He talks about how they aggregate this data, and it comes from so many sources because outbreaks can start in so many different ways. And if we want to understand what's coming, we have to look at travel patterns and how animals are doing across the globe and where is sickness starting to pop up. And, you know, he talked about how when the Zika virus hit Brazil, the artificial intelligence showed really quickly that that meant a ton of risk for Florida because of travel patterns. And so when you start to listen to an expert talk about this, about how human beings move around the globe in an unprecedented way, And viruses have evolved, and the ability of viruses to jump from animal to human and then back to animal has shifted. There are just a ton of factors here. We're just in uncharted waters, and there are some tools, as he talks about in this podcast, to help us better understand and predict that. But we don't don't get to live in a world where there's no risk to us of getting sick from something like this and where we can blame lots of other people if we do get sick. It's just, this is just part of the human experience. And I do think, as you said, Sarah, it's an opportunity for us to really elevate health collectively as a challenge together that we all care about instead of being nasty to each other about it. Speaking of travel patterns and transitioning to our next topic, I did wonder, will we see an outbreak in South Carolina after the flow of people into the state to cover the primary or to participate in the primary as volunteers, watching what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then seeing South Carolina on Saturday, there was a moment where I thought, oh, I wonder if this raises their exposure risk. Yeah, I was reading, I think, in Politico about 
campaign workers being concerned that people might stop attending rallies as frequently, that you might have lowered attendance at the conventions this summer because you've got lots of people converging on one space, and that this could have a number of ramifications for the election in the same way that it has ramifications for the business community, for the overall economy, for schools. There's just a lot that can um, ripple from something like this. So the South Carolina primary took place on Saturday. There was a lot of anticipation, particularly with regards to Joe Biden's candidacy. This was seen as his firewall. And I would say the firewall stood, wouldn't you, Beth? It was a very decisive victory for Joe Biden. It was interesting to just think about the first two states that had the most time and access to these candidates resulted in really indecisive results. And then the second two states, Nevada and South Carolina, it was really clear where the consensus is forming. In particular, South Carolina is a very diverse population and older African-Americans broke decisively for Joe Biden. It is not undocumented at this point in our podcast that I am not excited or energized or looking forward to a Joe Biden candidacy, which I don't think is a sure thing even coming after South Carolina. But, you know, years of being here in this space and saying it is important to listen to other people's perspectives. It is important to take other people's um, experiences, life perspectives into account It does give me pause and it does make me think, um, whereas in the past I would have just blown that off, think, no, people who have walked through life as an African-American, especially in the South, strong Democratic um, demographic, support of the Democratic Party, see and understand things I never will, I do want to... Be thoughtful and grace-filled in my consideration of that particular group looking at everybody else in the Democratic Party and saying, this is who should be the candidate. 100% agree with that. And I think that that probably weighed heavily in Pete Buttigieg's decision to get out because Mm -hmm. he performed very poorly with that group, as was anticipated. But the numbers were not good. I mean, Joe Biden was way ahead of everyone. But then that gap between Bernie Sanders coming in second and the next candidates, it was significant. It was really significant. And I don't think it's that we say, oh, let South Carolina decide for the entire country or, oh, let four states decide for the entire country. I do think, though, you have to be mindful of the patterns and who's going to vote next and what the demographics look like in those states. And I completely understand, sad as I was, I understand the Buttigieg decision to drop out, and I admire it. It affirms every good thing I think about him. And I share your um, interest, Sarah, in learning everything that I can learn about why Joe Biden has built so much trust with people who have different life experiences than I do. You know, Pete Buttigieg suspended his campaign. So did Tom Steyer, who spent a lot of money in South Carolina um, trying to do well among that particular demographic. And I just think it's really important for everyone. Our emotions are high. Candidates we love are leaving the field. Candidates we love have already left the field. And people feel frustrated. 
that our choices might come down to a 77-year-old white guy and a 78-year-old white guy. And I get that. I do. I really do. But I think everyone needs to be really careful in their language and their emotions and their analysis of whatever coalition, um, racial or otherwise, that Bernie or Biden build and speaking about those coalitions. I mean, I think everybody just it's going to get intense. It's going to get hot in here. OK, and. We have to watch our words. We just have to watch our words. And, you know, like I don't watch them when I'm talking to my husband in the privacy of my own house. I express a lot of not grace filled opinions. I get it out with my safe my safe spaces, <laughs> with my safe people. I'm not saying it's not OK to feel that. But I don't think it is advisable or wise, considering the heightened emotions, to try to work this stuff out on Twitter or, you know, I think we, my, how I feel about Facebook is well documented at this point. Um, I just think we all need to be careful. I, I saw it, even though I was on Twitter, I, did, I saw a tweet that was basically like, you know, talking about this particular voting group is starting to sound real privileged and real racist if we're not careful. And I think that's the right take. I do. You know, you can't spend the time being the most woke white person in the room saying, listen to minorities, listen to minorities, and then they pick a candidate you don't like and then you want to shut it down. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. And it's just helpful to remember that we're all looking for different things from the candidate. Mm -hmm. And that means that there are a lot of different ways to view this. I had really settled on Pete, despite some concerns, especially concerns from people who have different life experiences than I do, because I prioritize the commander in chief aspect of this job. That is the part that I am certain this president is going to have to handle the next president. It is where they are least checked. There is almost no judicial check on how you make foreign policy decisions, and there's very little congressional check. And so I'm looking for somebody who can be a really strong commander in chief. That is probably probably a minority viewpoint if you really talk to people about how they're making decisions. I also care a lot about personality. You know, I see a lot of criticism of Pete supporters as just wanting optics or rhetoric or um, niceties. That example matters to me. I think the presidential role is a very symbolic one. You know, I was first excited about Cory Booker and next about Pete because I want a president who talks about America in a positive way, who talks about people who disagree with them in a positive way. I used to work for someone who could stand in front of a room and just instill so much confidence in an audience and make people feel so good about what was going on. And I tell people about him all the time because I worked with him closely that you know, he is even kinder and smarter and better when nobody's watching than when he's in front of a big room of people. And I want that to be true about the president so badly. And I had that sense with Pete and Cory Booker that they probably were even brighter the closer you get to them. I don't think that's a a non-substantive way to vote. I get that that's not what everybody's looking for. And I think we just have to have some patience with each other. We're hiring based on different criteria that that's leading us to view these folks really differently. And that is okay. And that is part of the process. And it's all necessary. But we cannot be so judgmental about where everybody's landing as we keep going forward. Well, I had an aha moment as I was, you know, sort of facing the remaining people on the field. 
and the reality of their race, the reality of their ages. And I thought, you know what's so funny, not funny, haha, but interesting is we were all so consumed with electability. Who can beat Donald Trump? And I think the flip side of that coin is exactly what you talked about in our last podcast, which is most of us are going to vote for whoever it is as long as it isn't Donald Trump. I, I really believe that. I don't think there will be that many swing voters this time. And it's like we couldn't see the forest for the trees that if that's true, then it is an opportunity to not take the safe bet or the person whose name's out there or the person who's been out there doing it forever. Like this is time to step out a little bit because it offers cover. When everyone's consumed with beating Donald Trump, that means what everybody really wants to do is beat Donald Trump. And so you have some you have a little safety built in there because that's the number one concern. And so you have more room. You have more room to, I don't want to say experiment, but just to step out a little bit. And I'm sad that I don't think that's really going to where it's going to settle. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Um, I think we'll have a better idea after tonight, but it still won't be wrapped up. I definitely do not know. (laughs) And and what I do know is that we don't look at each other with a lot of trust about that right now. Mm -hmm. And that's part of... That's part of the problem. You know, our whole system rests on having confidence in each other. And we don't right now. And I'm really sad about where the race is. But I also am trying to be really fair about it, even on the age thing, as much as I think, wow, how did we get here? um, I have to remember people age in vastly different ways. You know, there are people who aging just blossoms them into people filled with wisdom and curiosity and humility and a good sense of the world around them and the people around them. You you could have someone in their upper 70s who really is able to surround themselves with good leadership and wise questions and groom people for the next president. And then some people aging contracts, you know, as much as as some of us expand as we age, it, it contracts other people. And, and I worry a little bit um, that in my own language, as I talk about the age of this field, that I'm that I'm proceeding on this false assumption that everyone contracts with age. And that that is just not true. And it's certainly not consistent with my life experiences. So I want to be careful about that, too. One more thing that I'm thinking about from the results out of South Carolina in particular, you know, Tom Steyer, I appreciate that he suspended his campaign, by the way. I think he could have said, I came in third. And what I learned is that once people get to know me, I've got more of a chance. So I'm going to keep going. He has the resources, too. So he could have made a different decision. I think it was wise and mature that he did not. I just want to point out Tom Steyer ran more ads in South Carolina than he got votes. Wow. That's bananas. So when we talk about the changes we want to see in our system, I think it is so important to acknowledge that there is not one answer. There are a lot of people who walk around in this country and say, if only we could get money out of politics. And I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm saying there is a lot going on here. And money is not the only issue. When you look at what Steyer has done, and we'll see how it goes for Bloomberg, 
maybe a totally different case study. But the way that we vote and get information and participate in our democracy is exceedingly complex. And I think South Carolina and Tom Steyer is a really important illustration of that. I mean, what I'm happy about more than anything coming out of South Carolina is that it disrupts this idea that it's over and it's Bernie. Like, I want to keep going. If you if I'm being honest, I want to go all the way to the convention. I like having a big, wide open field. I don't like everybody's anxiety about it. And I know I might be the only one who feels this way. But there's just a part of me that thinks like we're working some stuff out and it's not always pleasant. But conflict is good (laughs) in a lot of ways. It forces conversations. It forces self-reflection. Um, it forces though just exactly what you're just talking about, moments where we can see things play out in real time and go, wow, I never expected that result. Um, I think that's I think that's more data and you know, data isn't always the answer, but I think the more that we have and um the more that we see it play out across a wider variety of states as, instead of the media deciding it's over. Or maybe it's just that I'm not – I don't want to move on to the general because I don't want Donald Trump to enter this picture. Maybe that's what it is. But I also had a moment, too, speaking of Donald Trump entering this picture, where I thought, I don't know. He's going to be so brutal on whoever runs against him. Maybe it should be somebody further along in years <laughs> at the end of their career instead of the beginning of it. So they're not tainted by going against Donald Trump for the next 20 years. You know what I mean? Like maybe there is something to be said by putting someone like Bernie or Biden who are at the end of a very long career up against Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump is definitely focused on his reelection There's an article right now about how powerful his texting machine has become. His campaign is expected to send more than a billion text messages, which is just unprecedented. And text messages are a much more effective way to reach people than social media. So they're gearing up and it's showing in his policy, too. We now have an agreement regarding troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. The president Um, has signed off on an agreement with the Taliban that would effectively end our troop presence in Afghanistan right after the election. The agreement lifts sanctions on Taliban leaders, promises to work on behalf of the Taliban at the United Nations to have international sanctions lifted, too. It assumes that the current government of Afghanistan will be removed in order to create a new government that is more inclusive of the Taliban. It provides for 5,000 detained Taliban members from low-level fighters to senior operatives to be released. That is something that is actually the decision of the current government in Afghanistan. And they're saying, hey, we didn't commit to that. The current government of Afghanistan was completely left out of this process. And all through the discussion of negotiations with the Taliban, Mike Pompeo has been telling us that the goal here is for the Taliban to promise a break with al-Qaeda. That is not included in the language of the public deal, and the public deal does not have any kind of verification mechanisms in it. So it seems like the United States conceded quite a bit, and the Taliban didn't have to do much of anything here. And this is going to be a very significant shift. Just, you know, withdrawing troops that have been in place for 18 years would always be significant. To do that based on an agreement with a non-government actor known as a pretty bad actor in the world is very unusual. 
I was reading the New York Times article about this agreement, and it said that President Trump was always presented these classified maps, and he was obsessed, basically, with the enemy body body count as he looked at the Afghanistan war, which is a pretty meaningless metric and has been uh, seen as a meaningless metric since the Vietnam War. And I thought, this is just so reflective of the fact that he has such an antiquated view of war. And I think that truly is subsumed under his belief that this is a campaign promise and it's important to his reelection to get out of air. And he doesn't really care about the impact. This isn't a complex diplomatic effort. This is a campaign strategy. And that's really unfortunate to the troops that are still there, that have dedicated their lives to this mission, that have lost their lives for this mission, to the hundreds of thousands of Afghans who have lost their lives. And, you know, it's not that I don't think that this area of the world and our involvement in it needed um, fresh eyes and a fresh perspective and a fresh strategy. But a good strategy works when we know what we're trying to get. And re-election was not the goal that will put in place a long-term effective strategy in Afghanistan. You can see the turmoil in the Middle East having so many ramifications. We wanted to mention specifically tension between Turkey and Greece and perhaps the entire EU, with Mm -hmm. Turkey announcing that it is going to open its border to Europe so that refugees can make their way into Europe. This is resulting, the need for more migration is resulting from the conflict in Syria that we've talked a lot about, and particularly the brutality of the conflict in Idlib, Syria. Turkey and Russia are set to meet this week for some negotiations, which hopefully will help stem the tide of violence in Syria But it is displacing so many people, and Turkey is not supposed to allow that migration to flow into Greece. But they have said, we are full in Turkey, and we're going to move people on into Europe. And Greece is saying that they're going to use troops and um, deny asylum-seeking claims, which they are not supposed to do under European law. But they're asking basically for special dispensation because this situation is um, becoming such a crisis. And... I think when countries all over the European Union um, and the European Union itself is in a time of transition, having this crisis, which just exasperates it, which you could argue is the reason for the crisis to begin with, um, is going to intensify the situation. We also wanted to say before we move on that both of us have been reading a lot and paying a lot of attention to the situation in Mississippi Um, particularly with the Mississippi Department of Corrections. 21 people have died while in custody in the Mississippi Department of Corrections, especially the notorious Parchman Prison. Since late December, ProPublica has done an extensive investigation. Basically, the prison gangs are running the prisons, and the state officials know about this. There are basically subhuman conditions at these prisons. No human being should be forced to exist a single day in the conditions inside these facilities. People are losing their lives. Guards are at risk as well because they're so understaffed. It is really becoming a crisis situation. And the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division has announced an investigation into the four Mississippi prisons. But it's something that everyone in the country should be concerned about. This is not something that should be happening in the United States. It is despicable what is happening at the Mississippi prisons. 
Can I do something just completely out of character for me and go a little superficial? I am so taken with Taylor Swift's The Man video. I can't even talk about it. I I haven't seen it yet. Oh, Sarah, we need to stop everything and you just need to watch it right now. It's amazing. It is so smart. It is so assertive. And I think because I just watched Miss Americana, which we're going to talk about in A Nuanced Life that's coming up soon, I like it even better because I am really attached to sort of the way that she's been criticized, the way she's handled that criticism, the efforts that she's made to increase her confidence. And this video, all the way to the very last second before it ticks off, is incredibly powerful and so smart and such a brilliant way to use art to say to everybody, you know what? You're going to have to back off me a little bit. And I just, I think it's brilliant. I'm so happy that my daughters are growing up with this kind of example from Taylor Swift, and I appreciate it. And I will return to my serious, wonky self next week, but today... Taylor Swift, thank you. Well, I will compliment. Speaking of pop culture that makes you think deep thoughts, um, I'm going to compliment the makers of The Good Place. I'm working my way through it slowly. I'm to season three. That show is so smart. I mean, it's it's a short, in theory, comedy. But, man, I can watch, like, two episodes, and I'm like, well, I'm going to have to go journal for a while. Like, the complexity of, like, moral philosophy and ethics quandaries that they work their way through on a television show is so impressive. Uh, the performances are delightful. Kristen Bell is a gift to humanity, obviously. I'm just, I really, really enjoy that show. And I think it's such an interesting outlier. It's so different than everything out there. Um, I'm sad it's over. I'll catch up to the series. This is why I, st- uh, I went back to it, because the series finale is supposed to be just perfection. So I'm working my way there slowly. But I want to just send some love to the good place. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So we have now had several days to process the foundation of what Medicare is, what the Medicare for all proposals are. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the history of socialized health care and socialized health care proposals in the United States and where we are now. And I can't wait to have this conversation. Beth, what are you thinking after spending some time processing Medicare for All? One of the big questions, learnings, what do we do about this <laughs> moments for me is, is thinking about how health insurance has become a container for too many things, that kind mm. of issue that we identify in lots of areas of our politics. Because I think on the one hand, we have the Republican Party, not completely incorrectly, talking about health insurance as an opportunity for choosing. But I think they're having a different conversation about what choosing means than the conversation within the Democratic Party. Because I think the Republican Party is thinking mostly about insurance as a an instrument to control financial risk. And I think in the Democratic Party, we're talking mostly about health insurance as synonymous with what services and providers you have access to. And everybody's right. It just depends on how healthy you are, how much money you have, and what your tolerance for risk is. And none of those things are static. And none of those things are entirely within anyone's control. So I've been really trying, you know, I'm a person who typically thinks like free market capitalism is a flawed system, but it's the best system. And I'm acknowledging the limitations of free market capitalism around healthcare in that 
insurance is standing in for more than just how much do I want to pay in premium every month and how much risk am I really willing to tolerate for out-of-pocket expenses? Because for mm-hmm. so many people and for all of us, if we get into a chronic health condition or a catastrophic yep. situation, health insurance is the difference between can I get this test or service or not? I think you're right. I think it's it's the entry point into because of the cost of health care, health insurance is the entry point into any sort of health care at all, it feels like to most people. And we've reached the point where even health insurance is not a great entry point into the system because it's so expensive. As I was thinking about this, I realized that when I heard Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Representative Jayapal say health care is a human right. I was hearing everyone deserves health insurance. And I don't think that's what they mean. I think my sort of ideas and thinking about this were still sort of stuck back at Obamacare. And listening to them speak on it in more depth, I realized, no, what they're saying is health care is a human right And there is no room for profit in this space. And I wonder if that's it's time for us to have the conversation about that in the United States. I still remember the moment in Michael Moore's movie Sicko about the healthcare crisis where he said it's just there's not this is not where someone should be making money. We should people shouldn't be making profits off this. It's like the fire station. We don't want people to be trying to make a profit by putting the fire in our house out. And as I listen to these conversations about healthcare for all, I think that's where we're at. Do we want the people caring for us in our most vulnerable moments making money? Because even nonprofit hospitals, the CEOs of those places are making a lot of money. And most doctors are making a lot of money. And I'm not saying they don't assume risk, and I'm not saying it's a hard job, and I know that they there's a lot of time and valuable years of your life invested in the education system, but even with the pharmaceutical industry, I think that there is a conversation that needs to be had about profit, and I think when they repeat that line over and over and over again, healthcare is a human right, that's what we're debating right now is, is there room for profit inside the system? I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think it has to be a binary question. I don't think it has to be Mm -hmm. any profit or no profit or unlimited profit. (laughs) You know, I think there are places, I, I sort of admire the French for the way that they've started thinking about Maybe there's room for profit, but it's not unlimited profit. And we need to Mm. regulate that so that we keep costs under control. And I don't know where you start, because when you think about how much should a doctor make, in addition to just the years of life required to gain that expertise, they're spending a lot of money up front to to get that education. And then you could say, well, do we lower all of our healthcare costs if we first lower our higher education costs? Maybe. Transportation is an element of this, right? There are so many other strings that maybe you start pulling to see what starts to lower our healthcare costs. Something that I have been thinking about quite a bit 
is what are the benefits in the system that we have right now? And there are some. You know, there are certain forms of cancer where you can get much better treatment in the United States than anywhere else in the world. There are many places where our healthcare outcomes are worse, even though we spend more money, but there are forms of disease and conditions where you can get better care in the United States. And that's arguably because we are a system where profit is available. So people feel incentivized to solve these problems. Now, it's not to say, again, I don't want to take this in extremes. I still believe people will be motivated to find cures for diseases, even if they can't make Mm -hmm. a profit. I do believe there are people who just care about humanity. And we have lots of layers that make it very expensive to get a drug through the approval process. I don't think we want to get rid of that. You know, we we want to test and be careful and have confidence in what's out there. Healthcare is a really big term, too, right? And part of what I don't know how to talk about is how we segment forms of healthcare that are just about sustaining life versus forms of healthcare that are really about kind of what choices you want to make in your life and what what's important to you and how aggressively you want to deal with certain things. And I'm not saying that's not a reason to change our system. I think our system needs to be changed. I think we have just unacceptable amounts of risk for way too many people in our current mm-hmm. system. And I think all of it is horrifically complex. But it is 20% of our economy conservatively. And I also worry about, well, hey, let's try, let's just try something brand new all at once instead of sort of continuing to see where we can chip away to make some difference. So listening to Representative Jayapal go in great detail about the sort of more extreme versions of her proposal was really interesting. The first thing that I found really interesting was the people who, the currently like 1.6 million people who work in the insurance industry. And the first thing she said that rang really true to me, this is just gut, this is just an anecdotal reaction, is she said that particular workforce is aging which makes sense to me. I don't know a lot of young people who are like, let me go be an insurance adjuster. Um, So that made sense to me that they are aging. And so there might be some um, retirement and pension considerations. And then that it's not like we won't need those skills um, within the government as we move to a system. And that's a, that's a concern that comes up particularly often among our listener communities. Like what about the people who do these jobs now? Um, And I think that's an important concern. It should be a top priority. I do not think that should stop us from making changes. The other thing that was interesting that she said is why, why is your, your transition so quick? And she said, well, basically, if you stretch it out, when the industry sees the end coming, they take advantage and they jack the prices up um, because they know the end is coming. And I thought that also makes sense to me that if you do it quickly, um, you'd allow less time for people who are coming to the end of the road to ex- exploit that sort of end game. But in particular, I, I think one of the most helpful things I read and learned from was the Physicians for a National Health Program, because, you know, there's just a perspective of people that work within the um, industry and who are on the ground that is really helpful. And I think one of the most surprising things I learned from from them is that these sort of 
value-based payment systems, the pay-for-performance schemes that we heard all about in Obamacare. Like, we're going to really reward preventative care, and it sounded so good. It sounded like such a great idea, and it just shows that they're not really working. And so to abandon that and move in a different direction, because we did, we tried something new and it didn't work. There's a strong correlation to education there, too, right? We we went through this period where we where we believe that we measure things and we reward positive outcomes. And and it's like we forgot for about 20 years that not everything is within everyone's control. Yeah. And human beings are complex. Surprise. The other thing I thought was interesting is the global budget proposal that comes from the Physicians for a National Health Program. A global budget is a lump sum paid to hospitals and similar, you know, healthcare institutions to cover operating expenses and eliminates this sort of um, fee-based patient billing. That was really interesting. Like they ha- they would have money for capital projects and advertising and bonuses, but it would not the global budget would be about particular patient services, um, and you wouldn't be able to inflate it, um, upcode and billing. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. I just think no one wants to talk about, um, like to look at the numbers and you know talk about how much healthcare. And God save me, I'm going to use the term rationing healthcare, but it's a finite resource. Nobody wants to hear that because you think if I get sick or if my loved one gets sick, I want you to do whatever it takes. And that's not really what we're talking about. Like we're looking about it through that lens, but that's not the right lens to look at it. The right lens to look at it is the opposite end, which is we only have so many healthcare facilities, so many healthcare providers. It is a finite resource. And we need to have a hard conversation as Americans about what that means and the fact that more healthcare is not always better healthcare. And how can we make sure our system is working the most efficiently for everybody? Um, not because we care about more people more than others. We don't. That's not that's not what this is about. It's about we care for everybody, and this is a finite resource, so how can we most efficiently use this resource? Because we don't right now. We spend the most money, we get the worst outcomes um, under almost any rubric. So this approach of all in, more healthcare is better, is not working for us. And so we need to really start thinking about a different framework to view this through. And I think the the global budget and thinking about it that way is really interesting. I'm actually not even sure that we should be using the word efficient about the system. Mm-hmm. Because I think part of what has gotten us to this this place where we are today is is efficiency-minded thinking, hospital consolidation, merger, you know, bigger health systems that serve communities. And there are just a lot of downsides of bringing that business and data-minded approach solely to the party when you're talking about delivering healthcare services. When you go into a hospital system that is enormous, one, just like there is risk of getting sick while you're there. Um, two, the billing process becomes a total mystery. Three, we have serious disparities in terms of where people live and what kind of quality health care is available to them. Four, we make it really difficult on providers to live in the communities that of their choice based on where the opportunities are for them to do the kind of work they want to do. I mean, there are just so many reasons that the way you achieve efficiency in all kinds of industries has broken our healthcare care system. 
and disempowered patients and driven costs up. And so I think we almost need an entirely new rubric through which we evaluate what we really want from a healthcare system. And that's hard. I think that's a hard conversation to have, not only because it's not just that the way we think about the healthcare industry has changed, that the prices have gotten higher, that insurance is not even an entry point for healthcare, that people are rash, all these things. It's just that on top of everything else, the our health has changed. Obesity has increased. Other, you know, the consequences of an industrialized food system and the way it weighs on us and the way it also is not so simple as people are just going to eat what they're going to eat, you know, that that we have advertising and marketing and all these things coming into play, too, on top. Just pile all that on top of this already difficult situation that we have an aging population. Um, I mean, it's just it's a lot. It's a whole, whole lot. And that's if we can take a step back and, ha- and and look at it through the societal lens, not considering, you know, our own individual experiences within the healthcare systems, doctors that did us right, doctors that did us wrong, our mothers that are nurses, our sisters that are nursing assistants, how they get treated at um, a nursing facility. Like, it's just, there's so much wrapped up in all of this. I don't think that means we shouldn't keep trying, but... We have to give each other some grace as we're talking about these incredibly difficult, incredibly complicated issues. And continuing that thread that I started on earlier about how the healthcare system is so connected to everything else, I got this really interesting email from someone who said, we are seeing locally where we have increased our minimum wage to $15, an exodus of certified nursing assistants out of really difficult jobs that they are skilled to perform into retail. Because if you can make $15 working retail, it's a lot easier way, not that it's easy, but it's an easier way in some people's estimation than working, say, in a nursing home. And and I would never have thought about that. But I think it's a really important point. And so it almost, you know, takes this agenda. We, We incentivize our public officials and candidates for public office to break down their agendas by issue. So it's easy to optimize search engines and scroll their website and create cool graphs that show how they compare all their policies. But the truth is, probably what we need is someone who says, look, this is all so interconnected. Let me just give you a sense of how I would prioritize and where I would start and what I think would make the most meaningful difference the fastest and set us up for success for the next step. I'm all about giving all the grace when it comes to the policy of healthcare and um, the insurance industry, I don't have a lot of grace for the insurance industry, but the the repercussions, the data, what we know, what we don't know, how complicated it is, all the grace. Let me tell you where I have no grace. The scare tactics surrounding this conversation. We have been red baiting about this particular issue for almost 100 years, and I'm done. I'm done with the fear-mongering. And and let me tell you the ways in which I am the most done. (laughs) This idea of be scared, look at all you could lose. Let me tell you something, how I sit here as the mother of three small children who 
loves her primary care physician, loves her pediatrician, and all the same, you cannot scare me with the idea of you can't see the doctor you want. You might have to wait long. I don't have anything left to lose as where I sit right now, the cost of health care on my family. Like the idea that you're going to scare me with some idea of like wait times and not getting the doctor I want and some, ooh, won't it be scary to live like they do in Canada? Yeah, no, sorry. I'm way past that. And I got to believe I'm not the only person of my generation way past that. Like, I can't even express to you not to keep bringing up my almost $4,000 bill for my child's freaking ear tubes. But like, I'm past it, y'all. And I have kids with like serious medical conditions. And we cannot continue like this. Like the cost is so high for my family and then almost even with my child with serious medical conditions, thank God we are not in a space where we have to make really like hardcore calculations, but we still make financial calculations surrounding our health insurance all the time in my family. And when I think about somebody whose child might have what Felix has and they don't have any insurance And they don't have any financial wiggle room to deal with something that serious. You can keep your red baiting to yourself. Like, I'm so over that. I'm so 16 kinds of done with that particular approach. If you're not familiar with the term red baiting, it means that you are arguing a position um, pretty much solely by saying that your opponent is communist, socialist, Marxist, mm-hmm. that that basically you're just hearkening back to the, the fear that gripped America around communism instead of engaging on the substance of the argument. So that's what Sarah is talking about. And I agree that that is unhelpful. I will also say I think it is unhelpful not to grapple with the seriousness of this discussion when you are proposing solutions. And I am concerned that Medicare for All is being heard in 25 different ways by Americans, that we are conflating the idea of a single payer system with more uh, Western European approaches, with the British system of a national health service where the government actually owns some of the hospitals. You know, that changes all the time in Britain, too. So we don't even have a very common and accurate understanding of what's happening with the national health service. I don't think people know what is actually being talked about here. And I think that is a problem. And I think we're setting some expectations that are problematic. I do not believe that we should stop trying to figure out our healthcare system. And I understand that that probably means more federal involvement in it than I would be philosophically comfortable with. But that's what America wants. And that is okay with me, especially if it achieves some good results. I don't think that the United States is at all well suited to a British style national healthcare system. I don't see any place in our culture where we're very good at sharing creating lines, like respecting one. We're a very individualistic society. And I don't mean that in a dismissive or funny way. Like, I think we had um, Professor Michelle Gelfand on to talk about her book about tight and loose cultures. And I think the culture of Americans needs to be seriously considered when you start thinking about what works for us in terms of our healthcare system. And so I think what would happen if we created a single payer system 
is a lot of government contracting and a lot of public-private partnerships ultimately to, to get it up and running. And maybe that's okay. I have a lot of questions about how it would go. I do not think, here is where I am most critical of the proposals from Sanders and Jayapal. I do not think it is a good idea to have any system under which the vast majority of Americans would have no out-of-pocket expense. I agree. Because to your point that healthcare is a finite resource, we need some kind of mechanism for people to be discerning about when they seek healthcare and from who they from whom they seek. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I would mm-hmm. like better answers to those questions. I would like it to not cost $90 to get an ear infection diagnosis for my child mm-hmm. when I am very certain that it's an ear infection and that what we need is about a $6 amoxicillin prescription, you know. But I also understand that I shouldn't be able to just call somebody and get that because there's a public health consequence of us using too many antibiotics, right? There are public health consequences associated with us using too much medical care. So I think one mechanism that we need for most people, and I am comfortable with it being on a very sliding scale, is some kind of -of out-of-pocket responsibility in addition to however we pay our premiums, whether that's through a premium check or through our taxes. Yeah, that's the part that I, even after listening to Jayapal, and she's very convincing, and I understand that even the smallest amount of fee will prevent some people from getting medical care. And I'm okay with saying, okay, well, then primary care physician visits are free for everyone, free. But we're going to have to back that up with more support and for primary care physicians in our education system, pushing people into primary care, rewarding that choice. Um, Because what I don't want to do is just lay all this burden at the medical profession's feet and say, everybody can come for everything to the emergency room whenever they want. I think that's totally a terrible approach. I do think there should be some sort of consideration. And look, like maybe we get to the point, uh, maybe we start with some cost sharing and we have enough public education and we have enough societal conversation and we have enough culture change that we can move away from that. And we can have a conversation about, you know, it's, it's still not... Great. I don't know if we I don't know if it's our individualistic culture. Um, I, um, I think you're right. I think that's a huge part of it. It's like we don't look at coronavirus. We don't have a great um, cultural conversation, cultural understanding, cultural embrace of public health. Everybody thinks a person's individual health is just their personal free. Maybe it's our Protestant ethic. I don't know. But the idea that it's like, oh, well, it's just everybody's personal choices. We got to let that go. We need to let that go. And if Medicare for all and this idea that we're all in this healthcare system together can get us closer to that, closer to a more understanding conception of addiction and obesity and diabetes and all these things that are not just about, oh, everybody's just flown through life on their free will and it just plays out in their health. That's outrageous. And that is antiquated and it's not supported by evidence. And the closer, the, the sooner we get to abandoning that, the better off we all are. And I think, you know, if we can start using cost sharing as a way to trigger these, these moments, these thought process, particularly with regards to preventative care. And let's talk about not because I think preventative care can really easily drift into a conversation about personal choice, too. And I don't really think that's the point. I think it's about education and it's about, look, hey, it's not about your willpower. Let's talk about um, education like we did with smoking and like we did. That's what I, I had a disagreement with a friend today about. She said she would never support Bloomberg because of the big gulp getting rid of the big gulp in New York City. And she was like, everybody should be able to drink soda. And I'm like, hey, listen, that's not what public health is about. Everybody used to smoke, dogs, babies, everybody. 
And we took a public health approach to this, and we took in sort of the psychology at play when people do make quote-unquote choices, and we set up systems that are more supportive. And if cost-sharing can get us to a place where we're setting up systems that are more supportive to preventative care instead of, you know, just dealing with people's symptoms and crises so that we can support people long-term, I think that's great. I, I mean, I, I, right now I don't see Americans in such a great place that like zero cost sharing is not going to end up with a completely overtaxed um, healthcare profession in particular. Um, but I think that that's so that I feel like that's what's sort of undergirding that bigger issue is that we think people's individual choices are either good and bad. They affect their health. And if they're bad, then they don't deserve all the health care to fix it. Let's be honest. That's that's part of the narrative in America is if you've made bad choices, you don't deserve health care. Um, and maybe that's something we really need to have a conversation about when we say health care is a human right. Because um, I'm not sure all Americans feel that way. I don't think they do. And what scares me as I listen to you talk about this <laughs> um, is I I completely agree with you about the interconnectedness of our health. I worry that our tendency as Americans is to go all one way and then all the other. And we're already pretty awful about assuming we know everything about people's individual choices. You know, yes, obesity is an epidemic and you can be fat and quite healthy. And we're learning a lot more about that all the time. And I don't want to be in a place where our shared health system causes us to be even meaner about people's individual Mm -hmm. choices, causes us to be even more inflamed about discussions like abortion and transgendered individuals and women's health care. And I think that that is a risk. And so my tendency today, I mean, I don't know exactly where I land on this. And actually, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, you know, what what you want to learn more about as a next step. For me, I want to learn more about the French and German approaches where governments have taken a stronger position and ensured universal coverage still through private entities and also worked on mechanisms to lower costs. That's where I'm going to focus my research next. But I wondered what you're interested in learning more about as things roll forward. I mean, I think there is a way to... I'm trying to think about how to articulate that. I wish we could find a way to talk about our communal health and work towards a better communal health without moralizing. It's all the moralizing wrapped up in healthcare that I think leads us down those roads. It's almost like I'm interested in like the philosophy of, <laughs> of culture around healthcare. Um more than anything else. But I do think that there, to the to the more policy, less philosophical side, I think there are a lot of um, interesting approaches. And I think the the more we can let go of there is one socialized health care, there is one um, private health care, and see that there is a spectrum here, that there are a million different ways to organize um, your country and your country's health care along that spectrum, the better we all will be. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Okay, I performed a public service for y'all this weekend. I encouraged my family to join me in a blind taste test of the fish sandwiches 
currently available because of Lent. Arby's has been doing a hard push. Have you seen Arby's everywhere with the fish sandwich? I have. Okay. Then we have McDonald's with the filet fish Now, I did not realize till afterwards that Hardy's also has a fish sandwich. And now I hear Culver's fish sandwiches is good. But listen, I had to limit the scope. So we did Arby's, McDonald's, and Wendy's fish sandwiches. We did a blind taste test in my family. Have you had all these fish sandwiches? I cannot eat seafood. Oh, right. I forgot. This is not relevant to you. I forget about that. I'm listening very carefully, but I cannot. This does not benefit me. But that's how it works, right, with public services. And it was a public service and sacrifice because after doing this, I felt like I had a hangover. I'm about decided that I might have some sort of sensitivity to preservatives. Anyway, not the point. Okay. It's just so much salt. So much. It wasn't. Yeah, it's a lot. But the clear winner, like not even close, was Wendy's. I didn't expect you to say that. Well, listen, we like. I liked Wendy's. I like their fish sandwiches. I wait for it all year long. So I was already a little predisposed to Wendy's, but I was willing to acknowledge that Arby's could be a new player on the field and have really made it happen because I don't like filet fish and yet filet fish came in second even with me. Arby's was not good. Now, my husband says that this is a lot about the individual Arby's. I don't know. Oh, like that different locations might cook it different ways? Yes. Okay. That seems fair, but I'm telling you, I think even the best individual Arby's is not going to be great. And it's not going to be able to compete with Wendy's. Wendy's fish sandwich is excellent. And was this unanimous in your family? Yeah. Yeah. Not even close. Well, I'm going to stick with the fast food theme and tell you that I started watching McMillions. I know I'm way behind. Lots of other people have already seen McMillions. I'm jumping in. I'm the perfect age of the McMillions demographic, right? Because I so remember McDonald's Monopoly. Mm And I am the age of a person who has young children and puts them in bed and fires up Netflix. So it's perfect for me. Um, Although this one is on HBO, I guess. So McMillions, if you aren't aware of it, is about a white-collar crime investigation conducted by the FBI into people rigging the McDonald's Monopoly game, like in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's just a really fun show. I've said here before, I cannot do crime shows where there are dead bodies, but a white-collar crime situation, yeah, I'm all in. Yeah, I feel that. It's just a, it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. It's so relatable because I do remember, like, pulling, you know, Indiana Avenue off my French fries. It was a lot of fun. And the in idea that, that somebody cheated on McDonald's Monopoly... You know, you can just get very invested in that story quickly. So if you're watching it, I would love to hear I remember my stepdad having them all lined up on his desk and everything. I also have a friend who played a truly absurd amount of Monopoly online. And she has this really sick, weird talent where, like, whatever you roll, she can tell you the next. Like, she can instantaneously tell you where you're going (laughs) around the Monopoly board. My husband is the exact same way. He played a lot of Monopoly growing up, and I'm teaching Jane to play. I posted this on Instagram a couple weeks ago because Jane just wanted to learn to play Monopoly. And I was like, let's talk about capitalism. Let's talk about what what works here and why it works and what's a Monopoly and where do you see Monopolies? And she was like, Mom, can we just roll? This is perfect. Um, also tying in that liberal, conservative, the grid that you you posted, I did the grid. Yeah. What was it called? 
Um, mine was so liberal. We'll put the link in the show notes so y'all can do it. Mine is so left and so liberal. It was like 69% liberal, 72% left. Well, what I liked about the framework for this is that it was it was not liberal and conservative. It was liberal and commutarian. And I think that is a nice encompassing way to talk about I prioritize the group over the individual. And it made a lot of sense to me that I would be right and liberal and you would be left and liberal. And I think that's why we find so much agreement. Right. Well, tying it back to Monopoly, which is the real important application here. Uh, We played with Griffin, who, I'm not kidding you, burst into tears because he was like, why is this game so mean? (laughs) Why do we have to exploit each other? And I was like, because capitalism is the devil's son. This is your first important lesson in this liberal household. Um, And we ultimately decided to donate the game, mainly because it's just not a particularly fun game to play. It is long. It is too long. And there are like, I I guess I will say, it's not that it is not fun at all, but we are a big board game household. We have a lot of board games. And I do feel like I can speak with some expertise in saying, There are a lot more fun games out there than Monopoly. I would like to recommend Sushi Go to you. I would like to recommend... Ticket to Ride is so fun. Ticket to Ride. That's exactly what I was going to... Everybody agrees on Ticket to Ride. Monopoly, not that fun. Turns out we live enough capitalism. We ain't got to play it on a board game. We might need to interrupt our own show because Amy Klobuchar has dropped out. (gasps) Live in time reaction capture. She dropped out. Man, the pressure on Warren is going to be so intense to drop out. Don't do it, girl. You stay in. You persist. I know that's an unpopular opinion. Tell me why you feel that way. I want her to go to the convention. With what? I want a brokered vice president deal. I want to like, I'll be vice president. You only serve one term. That's what I'm looking for at this point. With Bernie? Either one. Bernie or Biden. I'm not picky. Well, I think this was the right thing for Senator Klobuchar to do. As much Mm -hmm. as I hate it, I appreciate it. I appreciate the unselfishness. You know what? This is the Democratic Party actually learning from the Republican Party in 2016. Word. And I value that. Now, that that is true. Well, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure. But that was important and we needed to get to it. Everybody, have a fantastic Super Tuesday. Come join us on Hot Mic at 8 p.m. Eastern. See us in all the places on social media. We're all just going to stick through this together. It's going to be very tumultuous for the next few days. And here we are. We'll do our best. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff. Tim Miller, Martha Branitsky, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Amy Whited, and Allie Edwards. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.